This show was first broadcast on the 8th of July, 2013. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, I visit Nerd Night to talk about sex and Pitt Street Mall to talk to pirates about the colour of your underwear. In light of the admissions that the US and UK spooks are spying on our every move, I went to the very noisy Pitt Street Mall to talk with David W. Campbell, Senate candidate for the Pirate Party, about prison break and the Protect Our Privacy protest. Okay, today we're here to make a little bit of noise about NSA's PRISM system, PRISM with an M. It has been revealed by a uh, a leaker by the name of Edward Snowden that the NSA has been running a system for about six years now that records basically every piece of information that flows through Google or Microsoft or Skype, which is owned by Microsoft now anyway, but Yahoo, all, all of the big ones, Facebook, basically everything you write down there, even if you're doing it in a, in a notation style, not, not even being sent as a message to someone, your private notes, if they're stored on these systems, then the NSA has a copy. That, that goes for Google Drive, anything synchronized to that, the NSA have a copy. We're, we're short on details of exactly how it works, uh, but we do know there are certain backdoors and controls that the NSA have. And they've been building giant data warehouses in the US for quite a while, haven't they? They have been building giant data warehouses to store this data. Uh, For how many years, we don't know. And we are actually aware that in the ACT, there is a data warehouse being built for reasons unknown. (laughs) Well, that's been on the agenda in Australia. Haven't there been a national security inquiry into the government's proposal to store metadata? The National Security Inquiry from the Attorney General's Department was basically a wish list of new surveillance powers. Uh, So that included storing your data for up to seven years and basically recording your day-to-day movements with a mobile telephone. Because if, if you synchronize your telephone with something like Gmail or Facebook, it records where you were triangulated amongst telephone towers. So they, they basically have a rough understanding of your day-to-day movements every day, all day, if you have your mobile phone with you. So it, it's a pretty scary amount of data. That is just the metadata. When they say metadata, that is metadata. But when you've connected to a Wi-Fi router, your phone collects a, a certain list of what they call MAC addresses uh, that you have been in touch with. On the surface, it's a very nice feature and it helps a lot of things work really smoothly and really well. The downside is when that's not used for useful features and it's actually used for collecting information on you, uh, that's where it becomes scary. And I don't know if the PRISM system is the only one doing this, but it is certainly proven that these companies are willing to do this secretly and hand this information over to spying agencies. Those MAC addresses are all unique. 
and my understanding was all those unique MAC addresses have been hoovered up by the Google Maps people when they were going around looking all over the world. That is correct. The Google Maps cars were collecting Wi-Fi SSIDs and MAC addresses if they could be obtained. Uh, MAC addresses are basically a unique identifier for your device. So if your telephone has Wi-Fi, it will have a MAC address for its Wi-Fi and it will also have a MAC address for its 3G. And these things are collected all together and on the surface they're used for really useful stuff like finding out where you are, it's useful for when, hey I'm at this party or hey I just got to work and hey the traffic's only going to be seven minutes on your way home. So that, that's really scary the first time that happens. Hey, aren't you on your way home? But I'm on a rotating roster. <laughs> it's, it's very useful technology but it's very scary that these private companies are basically forced to or voluntarily hand over this information and uh, that needs to be made far clearer to the public. The thing about metadata is there's no distinguishing features from a networking packet that tell it hey this is the metadata or hey this is the meat. So you actually have to put it all through a filter to determine what is the metadata in the first place which means the government rakes have to go through the meat of the information to find the metadata, which means they have to have the meat of the information. So is that the same as when they say that they're not wittingly gathering the phone calls of American citizens? It's because they have to gather everybody's phone calls to find out who the American citizens are? <laughs> Something like that. Unfortunately, collecting data on the internet needs to be a little bit dragnet if they're going to get any of this information. It's all just a big mess of packets. Hey, I'm 36 kilobytes of what could potentially be metadata or what could potentially be the color of my underpants. <laughs> it's, it's impossible to tell until you run some kind of heuristic program through it and that heuristic program needs to have the whole data before it can make a decision. And Snowden's also revealed that the, in the UK, the GCHQ are doing worse than the Americans. They're tapping directly into the international fiber optic cables. That is quite a fear we have here with the national broadband network. Obviously, we're replacing our copper with a government-supported fiber network. Now, fiber to the home is a system that Pirate Party supports because fundamentally it's, it's infrastructure moving into the future. If we stay on copper, we're dead in the water. But that doesn't mean that we need to put toll gates on every corner, and that's what they're doing in the UK. So we can have fibre to the home, and we don't need to go down UK's path, because it's a quite scary path, and it violates human rights just as the US are. Has the government been asked whether or not that's something that might happen here, whether they'll be splicing in for national security reasons? The government has been asked many times, and I know Senator Ludlam recently put forward a bill requesting answers to it in the Senate, which was rejected by both Liberals and Labor, which meant it died. There is a very easy way to answer yes or no to this, and the fact that they aren't logically concludes that they are, until proven otherwise. Well, I mean, there's been a long-standing American base at Pine Gap. Isn't its main purpose to intercept signals? There is a secret base at Pine Gap that Australian citizens are not allowed to even drive down the road towards. Uh, I've stood in front of the sign before. It's quite imposing. It's quite scary that there's soil in Australia that Australians aren't allowed to step across. That's only for Americans because we're spying on you. So be a good citizen and don't come into our building. It's scary stuff. What it all culminates in saying is that we have a surveillance society. It's here now. The only difference between 2013 and 1984 
is that we bought the cameras and the screens and put them in our lounge room ourselves. So if people are concerned and they want to do something about preserving their privacy, what should they do? For the layman, it's an almost impossible task. To be, to be quite frank, it's the dragnet recording of social media and email telecommunication systems. Now that we're switching to VoIP, all of your telephone line, telephone conversations go over the internet. So it, it is a daunting task. Um, the only real, real way to ensure anonymity is to use something called onion routing. It, it basically, it's sort of like Chinese whispers where you get a room of your closest 1500 friends and you give them all a piece of your message and they all deliver it separately. Or you give it to 1500 friends that give it to 3000 other friends. It's, it's very complex, but it's basically Chinese whispers. And um, it's slow, time consuming, and people, people want to be quick. So they're not going to use it, basically. Unless you're in a, a country where you're going to get hung for the kind of information you're getting out, people aren't that interested in Tor. The only real way to remain anonymous from your government would be to purchase something like a VPN service to the outside world in another country, but then you don't know what surveillance that country has. And as soon as you log on to a social media site, that all gets pinged back to you. So they write down your number, that's where he comes from. So that's where all of his stuff is anyway. You've got to be very careful and really there's no 100% solution to getting around it. In the end, the numbers all match up and they'll find you if they really want to. The other problem we're having right now is the US government have put pressure on Visa and MasterCard, not only to stop WikiLeaks payments, but they've also started to stand in the way of people purchasing VPNs in other countries. Which are virtual private networks. Yes, yes. Getting in the way of virtual private network purchases. So if you do purchase one of these anonymizing connections, the only way you can really pay for some of them now is using something called Bitcoins. And that is even more tedious to understand. I only have a rudimentary grasp of that myself. And as far as I can tell, Bitcoins are still a little bit of an experiment. <laughs> it is a little bit like an investment market. And I myself haven't, haven't used them yet because they're a little bit complex and I don't have time in my day to day. And I'm not really buying anything off Silk Road. <laughs> but I certainly do purchase a VPN off site mostly for hosting chat networks for the Pirate Party, things like that. But if, if this gets in the way, then effectively, if I can't pay for these VPNs because Visa or MasterCard are in the way, then the US is pressuring American companies who then get in the way of Australian political speech, which is a bit of a mess. <laughs> Isn't there also the issue that if you're using American servers for hosting your content, that you may find yourself subject to American legislation instead of Australian legislation and get arrested like Kim.com. Mm -hmm. If your data is on American servers, you are under American law there. They also have an act called the Patriot Act in the US, uh, which was enacted after 9-11, and it basically just signs over your rights to everything. So if you are using a server in another country and you are putting something sensitive on it, make sure it's encrypted. Never assume security. So is there any encryption software or, or uh, sources that you recommend? Uh, I would recommend the Tor project. Uh, they've made a lot simpler packages now that you can just run from a folder and that'll get you on the Tor network straight away if you just want to see what it's all about. For most people, they'll just look at it like, oh, it's the internet but slower and now Google thinks I'm in Venezuela instead of Australia. But it, it does throw your packets around in, in what they call onion networking or onion routing. 
and that will get you fairly anonymized. The issue, of course, you still have your PC advertising its MAC addresses, things like that, through the network. So a lot of it's just you've got to know what you're doing, and a lot of people don't. If people come up to you, and I'm sure they do in the pirate party, and say, if you've got nothing to hide, you've got no reason to hide any secrets, what would be your response? What color are your underwear? <laughs> and why are all these programs secret from us? Yes, yes. I mean, I think the real issue here isn't what do we use to get around it. The issue is we need to be able to trust our government. We can't. Let's change that. Vote pirate. And on that note, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was David W. Campbell, New South Wales Pirate Party candidate for the Senate in the upcoming Australian federal election. You can find out more about the Pirate Party Australia's policies at www.pirateparty.org.au. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Nerd Night Sydney is held every month in the Cafe Lounge. Dr. Peter Jonasson is a lecturer in personality and individual differences from the University of Western Sydney. He spoke about the evolutionary functions of the different kinds of sexual relationships people choose to have, from casual to committed. He hung around after the gig and we went outside the noisy club to speak about the behavioural ecology of sexual relationships. I would say that what I'm suggesting is, is that the types of relationships that people engage in are expressions of competing evolutionary interests between the sexes and the psychological needs that they need to satisfy, in part as a function of both society and from biological evolution. Types of relationships are not fixed categories, right? So everyone's marriage is a little bit different. Even one night stand is a little bit different, although maybe less different because there's less time to differentiate it. What's probably more likely is that the categories we use are just convenient fictions in a logical, positivistic kind of way that allow us to talk about these things. So I might say one night stand and you can say, you can tick off in your box, okay, I, I kind of get what he's talking about. And what my study was trying to do in this case was say, let's have a consensus about what these relationships are and I, the way I was defining what they are was based on people's perceived functions that they derive. And those functions, at least in this study, not that there aren't many functions that people get out of relationships, I've, I stuck with four, which was socio-emotional support, sexual gratification, a trial run, as in like you're testing out the waters, and placeholder, as in kind of biding your time until something better comes along. Yeah? These are not necessarily uh, deep evolutionary needs themselves, they're psychological needs. Uh, and the, the point I'm trying to make is that instead of taking an evolutionary perspective, which tends to have a, a negative connotation in terms of, say, genetic determinism and things like that, I'm suggesting that behavioral ecology, which is much more sensitive to environmental parameters and conditions, maybe this is what drives these relationships. So maybe if I'm in a society where I don't have access to a lot of high-quality mates, instead of committing to one, maybe I have a series of temporary affairs that you might call friends with benefits, until maybe I find one that's good enough to settle down with. And it, it does kind of describe what we do already. As much as we pair up in long-term relationships, like 99% of our relationships are temporary. Even if we date for five or 10 years, it ends at some point. And even the ones that don't end, they end in death, so they're kind of in still some ways temporary. There's this insistence on carving up things cleanly, because that's a very simple way of thinking. And my study is trying to say, no, no, it's not clean. 
It's extremely messy. And it's messy because men have interests in the, the mating market. Women have interest in the mating market. Indeed, if there's other factors like parents might have interest, children might have interest. Um, so it is a mess, to say the least. So the idea behind sexual variety comes uh, from a really good study by my friend David Schmidt. And what he's able to show with enormous sample sizes from something like 56 different countries is that wherever you go, if you ask men and women how many sex partners they would like, say, say tomorrow, a month, a week, three years, a year, a lifetime, the growth curve for men goes up exponentially quicker than the growth curve for women. And we're talking about 18, 19 year olds here, right? We're not talking about 35 year olds or 50 year olds. The idea here is that men derive greater reproductive success by a sexual variety approach, right? More partners meant more potential babies, but more partners for women doesn't mean more potential babies. Every partner she has, she's going to have a baby with. There are different evolutionary functions for casual sex, and that's, that's one of the hardest things that people have with the evolutionary psychology models is that there, you have to take into consideration the short-term and the long-term distinction. And in the short-term, that's when men and women differ the most. But in the long-term, we're basically the same. We do converge. That's when the girl and I aren't at odds in our mating efforts. We're actually cooperating now. But in the short term, we're not cooperating. I want quick, low investment sex, cost me very little money and, and be able to get it done and get over with. Whereas she's a little bit hesitant about that because she might get pregnant. Now, she might not get pregnant today because of birth control and condoms. But that's not where our psychology is shaped from. The adaptive biases in our brain come from times when there were no condoms, that there was no birth control. We have to avoid the bias of what's called presentism. Right? This is not how it always was. This is a really weird life we're living in with yeah. buildings and cars. This is not how it is, how, how our brains were shaped and in the, the environments under which our brains were shaped. The contraceptive pill, do you think that could have an effect on future evolution as people choose not to have children and take the pill or choose not to have the pill and have children? Well, if what it does is it changes frequencies of genes, as in some people are having lots of babies and other people aren't, in the long run, it's potentially it could have that effect. But we live in a society where babies are extremely protected. So even if I only have one child and someone else has five children, while that person has you know, five times as many children as I do, I still have my genes going to the next generation. So the, the, the selective, the natural selective forces in modern society at least are extremely muted. It, just 100 years ago, something like 75% of babies died before the year of one. And this is something we easily forget because we live in a world where babies just live. It's, it's nothing. So today, because of that lessened infant mortality problem, basically everyone has a baby. And what you then get is suppression of the selective forces and in my mind, and people like Richard Dawkins and Steve Jones as well, you have stagnation of biological evolution. And what you really have is, what you have then is cultural evolution that takes over. And so the idea of all these sci-fi movies, right? So if the earth falls apart, we don't change what we do here. We just, we move to, to, to Mars and we terraform Mars and these types of things. We, whatever we have at this moment is what we're going to stick with. It's like the, the, the principle of first in, right? So this is what we got now, and we're going to stick with this as long as we can, and we're going to change society and change the environment to fit this body we have, as opposed to change the body, which takes way longer, and people will die, of course, and that's why people won't do it. So there's this, you know, the emotionality of letting just people die out. It, people, you know, therefore natural selection has been muted. Not that we should let people die, but... That's where natural selection kind of falls down a bit because we're, we're able to artificially prop up, say, deleterious mutations in the genome. 
Isn't there evidence that there's been some rapid evolution in the last thousand years or so in some populations? Uh, there has been, um, but the question is, well, this is a debatable point. And the, the, the reason is, is, is what type of evolution are you talking about, right? So you could have microevolution and you could have macroevolution. And what it seems that what's been going on the last thousand years, and maybe even more than that, is microevolution. So some individuals say, like, have developed the ability to process um, um, the milk of cows, right? This is an adaptation in certain groups. So in China, you get very little ability to process milk, but in people who lived in the the the, ty- the, um, the Fertile Crescent and, and places like that, where people were drinking cow's milk, for instance, they those who developed the ability to, to, to produce lactose, lactase, lactase, were able to, um, to digest lactose and survive better. But it doesn't mean our species is changing, which is what macroevolution is about. And it's kind of like what you see with elephants. So people are hunting elephants and chopping off their, their, their um, tusks. And now some elephants are being born, guess what, without tusks. There's being a selection pressure imposed by humans on elephants to not have tusks. But the species itself may or may not be changing. Right? So microevolution has to start first, and if it gets a foothold, then you might get a macroevolutionary change. But I, I don't see any evidence for macroevolutionary changes in people, but definitely microevolutionary changes. And the other one, of course, which is often confused with adaptations, is just acclimatization, our ability to adapt in a non-evolutionary sense to our local conditions. And we are extremely adaptable as, as an organism. I mean, we, we, we might be the most adaptable organism, and we, can, we have colonized every continent on the planet, and most other animals haven't. The only animals that have come close to that are dogs because of their relationship with us, and the second most kind of widely spread primate is, is, are the macaques. And another issue you, you talked about was that women had more control over sexual relationships. Mm. Um, so this is, as people easily get... Uh, not, I don't know if I say offended, but they, they don't feel that they have power because they've had bad experiences. But we have to take ourselves out of the N equals one problem and say, okay, on average, who really decides when sex occurs in a relationship? And if, in, in any relationship, the guy is like usually pushing the issue and the woman is usually like, well, no, maybe not yet. Now, of course, there are situations where women are pushing the issue, but if you take 200 people or 200 couples, you're going to find that it was the man who wanted sex on average earlier than the woman wanted sex. And because women have um, the, the, the more valuable commodity, um, they're able to dictate those terms better. There's, the studies are every which way you slice it, women are less willing. So, for instance, one study asks, like, uh, if as a guy, like, I go up to every woman I see right now and I just say... Will you have sex with me? Will you go home? Or will you go home with me? Or will you go on a date with me? And men are basically get 100% no's to the will you have sex with me question. But something like 75% of men say yes to, this, to, the, to the sex question, right? Yes. So this is a, um, this is a, a asymmetry in, in short-term mating, right? But when you ask, will you want to date with me? The sex has now converged because now you're back to the long-term thing. So if you ask... You ask the woman, would you want to date with me? Well, that's, that doesn't, that's not this competitive problem anymore. Now, oh, I'd like to be engaged in something more meaningful, something cooperative with you, as opposed to, I want to extract immediate vagina, basically, out of you. It's an often mistaken dichotomy that people make about things being socially conditioned and things being, uh, um, say, genetically determined. And if we know anything from the biological, the non-human biological literature, that it's always both things at the same time working in tandem. But what's more interesting is that your, your ability to understand 
the, the function of society and social forces is actually itself an evolutionary thing. Society evolved itself. And you can use really strict things as simple as like the variability in sexual success, like how the, the variance in the number of sex partners in men and women. And this it predicts an amazing amount of things cross-culturally. Um, there's often the idea that, that in, in liberal societies that these, these gender norms, these sex norms go away. It turns out that in more liberal societies, they're, they're stronger. That in, in places like Nor Norway and Sweden, like sex differences in sexual behavior are actually stronger than they are in, say, more oppressive societies. Because what the oppressive societies do is they, they don't necessarily as much control women's sexuality, which they do, of course, but they suppress men's sexuality too. And that's what forces them close together. When men are free to do what they want, the differences become tremendous. So in Sweden, you find huge differences. And there's a, there's a whole culture built up in Sweden, at least, um, around the single mother phenomenon. And it's, their, their social system and their welfare system all supports that. It's, there, there's no expectation of marriage in, kind of in that system. So um, when, we, when we have these questions, we need to be, be much more critical um, and, 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 and focus on the data as opposed to what we wish to be true. And this is a point that you get really strongly from Richard Dawkins, right? That you um, wish, wishful thinking doesn't solve the problem, right? It's, it's what is reality. You can want something to be so, but it doesn't make it so. And if people want to look for further information on your research, where should they look online? I have a website. It's www, as most are. Uh, Peter Jonason, my last name is spelled J-O-N-A-S-O-N.com. Terrific. Well, Peter Jonason, thank you very much. You're welcome. That was Dr. Peter Jonason, lecturer at the University of Western Sydney, talking about sexual behaviour and evolution. You can find out more about his work at www.peterjonason.com. You can find out more about Nerd Night Sydney at sydney.nerdnite.com. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, guests with amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And do send us an email so we know you'd like to hear more. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.